Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. The Lord was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was a light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Father, give us wisdom, Lord, as we read Your Word and study Your Word today. Open up our understanding. Help us to get what you would have us to get. Let us leave here different from the way that we came in. We ask in your name. Amen. Do we need to cut off this mic or something? (coughs) Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. History records for us an interesting story. It was during the dark winter of 1864. At Petersburg, Virginia, the Confederate Army of Robert E. Lee faced off against the the Union divisions of General Ulysses S. Grant. The war was now three and a half years old, and the glories of war had long since given way to the muck, mud, and mire of trench warfare. Late one evening, one of Lee's generals, Major General George Pickett, received word that his wife had given birth to a baby boy. Up and down the line, Southerners began to build huge bonfires in celebration of the event. These fires did not go unnoticed in the northern camps. And soon, a nervous Grant sent out a reconnaissance patrol to see what was going on. The scouts returned with the message that Pickett's wife had given them a son, and these were celebratory fires. In a strange twist of fate, it so happened that Grant and Pickett had been contemporaries at West Point and knew each other very well. So to honor the occasion, Grant, too, ordered that fires be built. What an unusual night it was. For miles on both sides of the lines, fires burned. No shots fired, no yelling back and forth, no war fall. Only light celebrating the birth of a child. But sadly, it didn't last forever. Soon the fires burned down and the darkness took over. The darkness of the night and the darkness of war. The good news we're going to look at this morning is that in the midst of a great darkness, there came a light, and the darkness was not able to overcome this light. Additionally, it was not just a temporary flicker, but it was an eternal flame. Maybe this morning someone needs to be reminded of that. There are times in the events of this world and in the events of our own personal lives that sometimes it may seem that the light is going to be snuffed out. But John is going to affirm that whatever happens, 
the light still shines. Look at verse 1 with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That phrase in the beginning reminds us of the opening verse in the Bible, Genesis 1.1, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. One guy heard said this is the first mention of baseball in the Bible. In the beginning, Eve stole first, Adam stole second, and they both got thrown out at home. Aren't you glad I don't make up cheesy stuff like that? You're welcome. Solomon asked as he dedicated the temple, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? That's a good question. God's glory had dwelt in the tabernacle and in the temple, but that glory had departed disobedient Israel. Then a marvelous thing happened. The glory of God came to his people again in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. I want us to understand that John marks the beginning of Jesus' life as an event that took place before the beginning of eternity. We are told in the beginning was the word. Please note, it was not at the beginning, not from the beginning, but in the beginning. Jesus was already there. In the beginning, the Word was. He already lived and existed because He never began. The intriguing question is, when was the beginning? Go back as as far as you possibly can imagine this morning. Can you imagine 2,000 years or 10,000 or... How about a 10 million or a billion or even a trillion years ago? No matter how far in our wildest imagination any of us can go back in time, the beginning was even before that. Go back as far as you can envision, and when you get there, Jesus was there even before then. Because the beginning is before time itself. In the beginning, the Word was. That is... He existed before the beginning, meaning he never really began, but always was. Jesus was before time. That's because it was he who created time. And so Jesus journeyed from eternity where time isn't measured into time itself. He came into our time, into our calendars, and into our days. Can you imagine it? The Son of God who knew no time is now clothed in time. And so try to understand that this eternal, powerful Son of God left heaven and became contained in a microscopic human embryo. He had not yet formed eyes or hands or feet or brain. God was contained. God, who is described in John 1 as being the light, yet for nine months was in total darkness. And when he was born, he looked like any other human. He weighed maybe seven pounds, unable to feed himself, with eyes slow to focus, hands not quite able to grasp, certainly unable to speak, and wearing diapers. Totally dependent upon a recently married couple for every necessity of life. And yet, he was the Son of God. He came not only from eternity into time, but changed time as we know it. 
he reset the clocks of time. Before, calendars were marked by the reign of kings, as in the third year of the reign of this king or that king. But now our calendars are based upon the coming of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. They're based upon Christ's birth. History is divided by it. And what is so amazing is that the whole world, even those religions that reject Jesus as Lord, set their calendars and their clocks by his coming. Now to consider this, consider another story. Back on July 12, 2001, a wall of garbage collapsed in Manila's main dump, crushing shacks and killing over 100 people. There are upwards of 40,000 men, women, and children who build their houses on the blackened, stinking waste of Manila's garbage dump. Their homes are constructed out of what they can find. And the children are sent out each morning to scavenge food through the massive pile of the city's garbage. Now in America, we live in the land of plenty. And yet there are those who have lived in nice homes, who have eaten in nice, clean restaurants, but have chosen to leave it all behind and become missionaries to live, amongst the minister, to live amongst the minister to the poor people who are living, eating, and dying in a garbage dump. As amazing as that is, it pales in comparison to Jesus' journey from heaven to earth. It was also a journey that he chose. He knew where he was going, and he knew the sacrifice that he would make. But he chose to make that journey from heaven to earth to save the human race. He traveled to the earth to minister abundant life to all who live, eat, and die in the garbage heap of this world that we live in. He did so because the human race that he had created had gotten off course. Because sin has turned us against God and polluted the earth in the process. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That simply means that the Word moved into the neighborhood and took up residence among us. One commentator I read said this, In his external preexistence, the Word was with God. The English translation does not bring out the full richness of the Greek expression. It's the phrase proston theon. That phrase means far more than merely that the word existed with God. Perhaps proston theon could best be rendered face to face. It gives the picture of two personal beings facing one another and engaging in intelligent discourse. I want us to understand this morning that the word is a person, not an attribute of God or an emanation from him. And he is of the same essence as the Father. He is the eternal God, and he is equal with God. Jesus was not only with God in terms of being in the same place, he was with God in equal terms in the eternal Godhead. Now this is an extremely important truth because the deity of Christ is an essential, non-negotiable tenet of the Christian faith. Jesus is fully God and everything that God is. He is omnipresent, he is omnipotent, and he is omniscient. He is also holy, righteous, just, 
and full of grace and mercy. And then Jesus became human, making his dwelling with us. He gained a human body. He felt human emotions and had human thoughts and functions. But when he became human, he never stopped being fully God. He was 100% human and 100% God at the same time. Hebrews 1.8 tells us, But of the Son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That first chapter of Hebrews is talking about how Jesus is greater than all the angels. The term used there of Jesus is of that of being God and And after his resurrection, he appeared to Thomas, who had been doubting before Jesus had been risen. And when Jesus proved to himself that it was indeed him, by having him touch the wounds of his crucifixion, how did Thomas react to that? Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus then said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now, if you study the Bible, in every instance when a heavenly being appeared to a human, the humans always fall down to worship them. The humans are then corrected and told to stand back up because these beings were not God. Now, notice that Jesus did not correct Thomas when he called him Lord and God. I think it's important to note that. And there's not one religious leader such as Moses, Confucius, or Muhammad, who ever claimed to be God. Jesus is the only person who has convinced a great number of people that he is himself God. Now, that claim can either be true or that claim can be false. If false, Jesus knew his claims were false and he lied, or he was deluded and a lunatic. Now, if Jesus knowingly lied, he was the world's greatest hypocrite and a charlatan of the worst kind. He would also be the greatest fool who ever lived. For what person would knowingly and willingly die for a lie? But if Jesus was deluded, how could his teachings have helped so many people for such a long period of time? Not only that, Even his critics and his enemies have nothing but the highest accolades to say about his character. It was C.S. Lewis who famously observed, You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Either Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord of all, and there is no other choice. Really, fundamentally, our Lord's message was himself. He did not come merely to preach a gospel. He himself is that gospel. He did not come merely to give bread. He said, I am the bread. He did not come merely to shed light. He said, I am the light. He did not come merely to show the door. He said, I am the door. He did not come merely to point the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is who he said he is. Look at verse 3 with me. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. People say it's crazy to believe that Jesus created the universe. I don't think so. But even if it were, 
It's crazy to believe a lot of things. For example, right now, we are standing on a rock that is rotating at a thousand miles per hour. We are flying around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour as part of a galaxy that scientists estimate is hurling itself at over one million miles an hour through the universe. And so we can see that things are not so ordinary as they sometimes seem. Atheist Richard Dawkins tells people that God and him creating this universe, this universe is too extraordinary to believe. So what are our, our, our alternatives? Believe it or not, there are really only three to choose from. Option one, God created the universe. Now admittedly, that's a pretty extraordinary claim. But let's look at the other two. Option two, the universe just popped into existence from nothing without any explanation whatsoever. This is the answer of evolution. Now from where I stand, this is a very odd option indeed. Why? Because nothing else in our everyday life just pops in and out of existence without any explanation. And so if it doesn't do so now, why think that it did so at the beginning? And would that not just freak you out? I can't imagine walking my mail route and have vicious dogs pop in and out of existence all day. <laughs> and finally, option three. The universe, or perhaps some series of universes, has always existed extending infinitely back in time. It's called the multiverse theory. But all that does is push the question one step back. We still have absolutely no explanation why there is a universe at all. Dr. Arthur Compton, Nobel Prize winning physicist, commenting on this verse of scripture, said this. For myself, faith begins with the realization that a supreme intelligence brought the universe into being and created man. It is not difficult for me to have this faith, for it is incontrovertible that where there is a plan, there is intelligence and an orderly unfolding universe testifies to the truth of the most majestic statement ever uttered in the beginning, God. In a popular interview posted on YouTube, scientist Leonard Mladenow, who co-authored the grand design with Stephen Hawking, declared, Science shows that God is not necessary to explain the universe. He also adds, I find it very hard to see how people can possibly believe the Bible. But then Mladenow gave this very surprised answer to another question during the interview. Now listen closely. He said, I tend not to believe in things that there is no evidence for, but that is not always true. I do believe, for instance, in aliens. I believe that there is life on other planets, and I think there is no evidence for that. We don't understand the origin of life on Earth well enough to say how probable it is that on another star life could form. But in my heart, for some reason, I find myself believing that. Christian apologist William Lane Craig commented on this. He said, that is really bizarre, isn't it? That he believes in aliens, even though he says he has absolutely no evidence for it, but he just finds he believes in his heart that extraterrestrials exist. 
But he doesn't apparently find it in his heart to think that God exists the same way many people do. But if he thinks he is rational in believing in aliens, why isn't it rational to believe in God? That's interesting, isn't it? Ask yourself this this morning. Why do you believe what you believe? We really do take a lot for granted. We just assume that when we wake up tomorrow, the universe is going to keep on behaving in the regular, stable ways that it always has. Now, we do this without pausing to consider what an astonishing assumption that really is. Just think about all the predictions you will have to make in just the next 30 seconds that need to come through for your life to have coherence. For example, you assume that the objects in your vicinity are going to more or less remain where they are, the gravity is going to continue to do its thing, and the sound waves will behave the way that they've always behaved. Why? Why do we assume the universe is going to continue with such regularity? You may answer, because it's always done so. But that's not an answer. In fact, that is precisely the question. But why? Why has it always done so, and why do we continue to think it will do so tomorrow? Of Jesus, Paul said in Colossians 1.16, All things were created by him. Scientists call the atomic force that holds the atoms together atomic glue. The Bible, however, identifies this mysterious atomic glue as Jesus Christ. For by him, Colossians says, all things consist or hold together. But there is coming a day when Jesus will let go of his hold on the atom, and the result will be utter chaos and destruction. You can find that in 2 Peter 3.10. But in this day of grace, he continues to hold on to the galaxies, the atoms, and our lives. So why do you exist today then? You were made by him, and you were made for him. And if you don't give your life to him, like Aaron Adams, you will eventually fall apart. Life won't make any sense. You'll wonder what you're doing, where you're going, and why you're living. The secret of life is found here in the prologue of the Gospel of John. All things were made by him. You know, some people don't quite understand the meaning of their lives. They feel like their life is a book with a missing chapter. And John is saying that the Logos, the invisible power that holds the world together, became a human being. He is that missing chapter that will make the rest of the book of your life make sense if you will embrace it. And if you haven't and would like to, please see me after the service about that. Verse 4, please. In him was life, and the life was a light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. I read this week that four members of a family in Haiti were found dead in their home during the 1998 solar eclipse by what officials said was accidental poisoning. 
Police said that the four died of an overdose of sleeping pills taken to alleviate their anxiety. But suffocation was also suspected because the family plugged all the openings to their home to block out the sun. You see, thousands of Haitians hold to the superstition that an eclipse will blind or kill them. Now, as tragic and as unnecessary as that event was, how much more so is it tragic and unnecessary that millions of people are still afraid of the light of life, the Lord Jesus Christ? We are now told here that Christ is both the life and the light of men. What does that mean? One author I read put it like this, God, we are told, is light. Light reveals what is hidden. And when we encounter the light of God, even in small ways, our twistedness and duplicity and tendency to mess up are revealed, and our denial and collusion stand naked before us. I like that. Light is both energy and beauty. But with Jesus, this reaches a new height. Moses saw the Shekinah glory of God and reflected it the way that the moon reflects the light of the sun. But the Lord Jesus radiated this light. His his light wasn't just a reflection, it was the source. A little translation of John 1.5 says, And the light keeps on shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome or comprehended it. Now that Greek verb there can mean to overcome or to grasp, as in to understand, And throughout the Gospel of John, you will see both attitudes revealed. People will not understand what the Lord is saying and doing, and as a result, they will oppose Him. That word comprehend or overtake, depending on your translation, is katalambano in the Greek. It can mean to seize or take hold of something, but it can also mean to mentally grasp an idea or a concept. And theologians go back and forth on the meaning of this word in verse 5. And you can stack books on both sides, and they both make great arguments. And so is John saying that the light shines in the dark, and the darkness did not comprehend it? Or is John saying the light shined in the dark world, and the darkness in this conflict was defeated? As I said, you could choose either side, and the people a whole lot smarter than me would agree with you. Now, I really don't have a preference, as I think they both can be true. So when we read that darkness does not comprehend the light, it means that darkness never has or never will be able to overcome or extinguish the light of God. And despite Satan's frantic and furious assaults on the light, the darkness will not overcome it. If you think about it, even a small candle can drive the darkness from a room. And the brilliant, glorious light of Christ will utterly destroy Satan's realm of darkness. On his deathbed, the last words of G.K. Chesterton were these. The issue is now clear. It is between light and darkness, and everyone must choose their side. Now, When we are walking in darkness in our lives, in just a specific area, we cannot see very far. Now, either we don't care about what is right, or we are trying to hide an issue from others. Now, this leads to something else, and that is that we can start to live life according to our feelings. 
when you can't see very far in an issue, when you can't see what the ramifications are for your lives or for the lives of others around you, then you just do what feels good and you avoid what feels bad. And when you are living in the darkness, let me tell you, because I know, the one thing that feels really bad during that time is light. Now, in his light, we will see ourselves as we truly are. We are sinners in need of a Savior to rescue us out of the spiritual darkness. And if we acknowledge Jesus for all that he has done and ask him to rescue us from that darkness, he will be faithful to turn that light on. And then he will use that light to light us up to a dark and dying world. As we close this morning, there are two things in the Bible that are spoken of as God's poem. The first is found in Romans 1.20 where we read, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. The Greek word for what has been made is a derivative of poema from which we get our English word poem. The other instance is found in Ephesians 2.8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. Now that word translated workmanship is the word poema again. Another translation says not only are we his workmanship, we are his masterpiece. Because just like the heavens, we were created to reflect the glory of God. And just like people are supposed to be able to look at the universe and see it as a poem that must have been written by God, people are also supposed to be able to look at the life of those who follow God and say, there walks a poem that must have been written by God. And I want the author of that poem to be the author of my life also. The Bible also tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 that our lives are letters known and read by everyone. Listen, the created universe points to God. I am absolutely convinced of that. But people will only be open to seeing that if they can also look at the lives of God's people and see new birth, stability of character, and a deep knowledge of who we are, and a confident sense that we are designed for a great life-giving purpose. So let's live that life among them starting today. Lord, I'm so thankful that you are the light. I walked in darkness for 21 years, and it's only since that time that I have had true purpose in my life and joy and peace and all the things that the world is clamoring after but can't.